we have a, a great opportunity this morning. Uh, this morning we're doing some, some child dedications as we celebrate Mother's Day and celebrate families. And uh, we are actually dedicating 15 uh, little ones this morning. And that's just, uh, I think that's something to celebrate and that's something to be excited about. And uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes Paul needs to get us started with the clapping, right? It's early. Uh, but uh, we're doing that this morning. And, and this service, uh, we're doing, doing two uh, little little kids. And so I'm going to turn around, and uh, when I call their names, the family's going to come up here on stage, and there'll be a, there'll be a picture on screen. Uh, first up, we have Chad and Stephanie Lesnett with Elijah. Next up, we have Dana and Amber Harvey with Daphne Rose. Parents, we are proud of you. Uh, By participating in this dedication today, you as parents are acknowledging your role and your desire to raise these children to know Jesus. At the same time, this dedication is a reminder to all of us as a church of our commitment to children as well. Parents, the child you hold is a gift from God, a perfect gift. Before the thought of a little boy or a little girl entered your mind, God had already determined that this little gift would be given to you. As parents, family, and friends, and as a church family, we can celebrate how great God is today. The Bible commands parents to raise their children and to teach them about the love of Jesus. And if you will do so, you can equip your children for their life ahead and teach them to serve in this world. Please know that it will take more than simply telling them about the love of Jesus. You must model this for them too. How you serve and love one another, what you say and what you do. As a parent, your entire lives are opportunities to show your children how to follow Jesus. Now this may sound like a big responsibility because it is. And today is a great memory for your family, but it is also a day to commit to something. So with that, I have a question for you. Parents, do you promise to provide a home and a spiritual upbringing that will incline your child's heart toward the gospel and a relationship with Jesus? If so, please say, we do. I'm going to ask you, the church family, a question. And to do that, would you stand? Family in the church... Do you take the responsibility to assist these families as you teach and work with their children and gen kids, middle school and high school ministry, as you get to know them in your connection group, and as you spend time with them and share with them when we meet together as a church? If so, please say, we do. As you remain standing, we want to pray for these families and these children. I'm going to invite T-Rock, our gen kids director, to do just that. Would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, thank you for your love for us and for these children. We dedicate them to you today and pray that they would grow to know you, to love you, and give their lives to serve you. Father, please partner with these parents so they can provide for their children each day. Give these parents strength to make difficult decisions, the wisdom to teach their children your ways, and the love to love their children as you love us. Lord, please protect these marriages so that they may be a blessing to you their children, and the community around them. Father, as a church, may we never forget
forget our ministry to children. Help us as we seek to reach our other families in this community. In your son's holy and precious name, we pray. Amen. Hey, you can go ahead and have a seat if you would. Um, we, we celebrate Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Uh, we celebrate when we can come together as a church on a, on a day like today and be together with one another to, uh, to sing those great praises. Uh, we also celebrate with the opportunity that we have every week uh, to give of our resources to the work that God is doing through this church and in this world. And I- I'm really encouraged and excited when I see families up here and I hear that there are 13 others that we're going to be dedicating their children today and that our church is growing and we're reaching families and we also have the opportunity to reach children and students. And so I want to let you know that when you give and when you give to the work that God's doing uh, through this church, you're giving to families like these. So I'm going to invite our host team to come forward and take our offering at this time and as they do, we celebrate that when we give. My name is Paul Mumaw, and I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis Church. And if this is a, a first visit for you, uh, we want to we say that we, we are glad to have you and, and a special welcome to you. When you came in today, you should have received a worship program. Uh, I've got one around here somewhere. I left it down in my seat. I think you know what it looks like. But uh, if you want to take some time to read through that, some of the great things that are happening here at this church. Uh, if you are a guest of ours today, we'd invite you to go to the Info Hub after the service uh, as we've got a gift that we'd love to give just to say thank you for being here. But there is one special thing that I want to know in that worship program, and that is that in just a couple of weeks, I believe it's Sunday, May the 22nd, if I've got my date right, uh, we're going to do an event called Intro to Genesis. And if you're new to this church, if you've never been to Intro to Genesis before, it's the next best step for you, as we want to invite you to come at 6 p.m. on Sunday night, May 22nd, for dinner uh, here in our building. It's a great time, very laid back and relaxed. Uh, We just want to tell you a little bit more about this church, help you get to know some people around you, maybe people that are in a similar situation, and give you a chance to ask some questions about the ministries of this church. Uh, All we need is for you to sign up, and you can do that today on your connection card, or you can go back to the info hub after the service. Uh, We just need to know that you're going to be here with us, and uh, and we hope that you will. We hope that you'll make the plans to come, because it is the, the next best step. Today is Mother's Day, and uh, we, uh, we're celebrating Mother's Day. I'm celebrating Mother's Day because uh, I'm very thankful for my mom, and I'm thankful to, to have her, and uh, we'll look forward to talking with her on the phone today because she lives in Illinois. I'm also thankful for my wife and uh, the wonderful mother that she is to our children, uh, but I also recognize that there are probably a number of moms here in the room today, and uh, if you're a mom, we just want to recognize you and celebrate you this morning. Would you mind just standing for a second uh, as we just want to say thank you for what you do? Remain standing, but Let's give, uh, let's give these moms a big hand for what they do. Um, you're going to have to be awkward, feel awkward for a second, because um, I'm going to pray for you in a moment. But I, I want to say to you that what you do is so important. And uh, you have been given a gift. You have been trusted by God no matter what age that child may be. And uh, what a great opportunity that you have to pour into someone else's life uh, as a mom. I know that it's not an easy task. I know that it's not an easy responsibility. The Bible talks about in Proverbs 31 about the role of a mom, the role of a wife. In Titus chapter 2 about the great calling for you as a mother, uh, maybe as a wife too. And um, I want to pray for you uh, because I know that what you do isn't an easy task. And I know that for some of you, uh, maybe you find yourselves in a really difficult situation right now. But uh, if we'll just all pray together, um, let's bow our heads and let's pray. God in heaven, I want to thank you uh, for these moms standing here this morning, Lord, uh, for your work in their life, uh, for the blessings and the gifts that you've given to them as mothers, God. And, uh, and I want to pray for that role and that responsibility that they have because they know that it's difficult and that it's challenging. 
Uh, God, I pray that you would be their strength. Um, I pray that you would be their guide, that you would be their source, and that you would continue to raise them up to be, to be godly women, to be godly mothers, and uh, that you would encourage them and support them in great ways. God, I also want to recognize that for some, uh, this is a really challenging day, and maybe for some women in the room, but, but others too who maybe have lost a mom recently. Uh, for others, maybe the, the challenge, the difficulties in, in getting pregnant. Uh, we don't want to look past that for, for others. Uh, this, this can be a very difficult day. Um, but God, we pray and, and believe with all of our heart because of what the word says, that you are faithful and you are true, that you walk with us even in the most difficult days of our lives. And, and for those that need um, um, that, that, that extra care, that extra sense of your presence today, God, we pray that you would be right there and for your great work in them. Uh, thank you again for these women. Thank you for their role in this church and the role of the lives of their families and their loved ones. And we pray all this now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, moms. You can have a seat. We are uh, we're talking about urban legends. What's an urban legend? Uh, an urban legend is a myth. Uh, it's a hoax. It, it, you hear something and you can't help but wonder, is that fact, is that fiction, is that true or is that false? You know, things like does Bigfoot exist? You know, or does the military really have a UFO tucked away on a base, you know, in Roswell, uh, New Mexico? Uh, does our worship leader, Cameron Sprinkle, does he wear skinny jeans or those slim-fitting jeans? You know, we all want to know, fact or fiction, what's true, what's false? Well, you know, the same thing happens with Christianity. And last week we talked about the myth that God's supreme desire, that, that God's greatest uh, desire for you is your personal happiness. Uh, and that if you're not happy, then something's wrong with God. And because he's all about you living a pain-free, worry-free life. Well, as Josh explained last week, that, that's a legend. Uh, that is a myth. It's not true. You know, God's primary concern for your life and my life isn't to simply make you happy. No, he's more interested in blessing you. He wants to be sure uh, that he is enough for you, uh, that he is all uh, that you need. Today, I want to look at another urban legend. And this urban legend or this spiritual myth is extremely important as your eternity and my eternity hinge on our response to this being legend or this being truth. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's the urban legend that there are many ways to God. The urban legend that there are many ways to God. There is a growing and popular belief in our country today, outside and even inside of the church, that all roads lead to God, that all roads lead to heaven. And it doesn't matter what religion or what path you choose, they all lead to the same place. They all lead to God. And so we hear people talking about this on TV, or you hear people talking about this on the radio. It, it, it's a popular talking point in the classroom or an article or in a book or something. It doesn't matter what you believe. All roads lead to God. Which reminds me, there's a, a story. There was a pastor and a Muslim woman and a Mennonite and a middle-aged woman all waiting for an elevator. Okay? Well, there really is no punchline because that's what happened to me the other day. I was at the hospital and I was waiting to go up to the elevator. And I don't know, I just started laughing in my head thinking, okay, this is how a joke gets started. This is, this is how it all comes together. But seriously, we live in this melting pot today, don't we? Uh, people of all backgrounds, of all beliefs, of all religions and practices. And in this politically correct world, it's not uncommon for people to think, to hear, and to believe that there are many ways to God. And it really makes it challenging to be a follower of Jesus, right? 
I mean, it really does. I mean, it's ironic that we live in a day when, when there's all this talk of spirituality. It's a popular topic, and it's not uncommon to flip on a show like The View or, or some other show for that matter and find people talking about faith and religion and about what you believe and spirituality. And some are really animated, and some get really vocal and heated about this and making sure that you realize that there isn't just one way to heaven. That as long as you're sincere, all roads lead to God. I heard one person describe God and our path to God like this. He said, you know, if God is like a mountain, all right, well, then all our goal is is to get to the top. And it doesn't matter which path or road you take because they all lead to the same place. And so it's not uncommon for you and I to have a conversation with someone, with some friends or a student or a coworker. Or, or something, or, or to hear someone on TV talking about finding peace with God or finding inner peace, you know, in Scientology or in a Buddhist monastery. You know, spirituality is a popular topic. You know, this talking point that all roads lead to God. I mean, it has a great ring to it. But even with all of this open dialogue about spiritually, have you ever noticed how everything changes when you bring up the name of Jesus? How the temperature of the conversation just skyrockets whenever the name of Jesus comes up. And, and maybe you found yourself in a situation like that. Maybe you know and realize that with the family gathering that's going to happen after lunch today, there's that one family member, and sure enough, the topic's going to come up, and you're going to talk about your church, and you're going to talk about Jesus, and the conversation or the temperature is going to increase. Or maybe you've got a friend, and you, you were talking to them about a tough time before, and you started to talk about Jesus, and it was almost like you could feel them just back off. You know, they, they really wanted nothing to do with a conversation like that, even considering such a name. You know, Jesus does that. The name of Jesus often changes the conversation. I mean, you mention Jesus, and all of a sudden you're labeled as narrow-minded or judgmental, maybe a moron. You know, and not only Jesus, but think about how Christians are portrayed in TV or, or in a movie today. I mean, when was the last time that you saw a Christian, you know, on TV or even in a movie portrayed in a positive light? And we hear all this talk about faith and karma and spirituality. We hear these words a lot. And because of this growing interest in finding peace and in finding your way, you know, one of the regularly, regularly accepted urban legends out there is that all roads, all paths lead to God. And let me just say this. I can understand, even as a pastor, why it's easy to embrace uh, something like this, something that sounds so appealing, right? That all roads lead to God. I mean, it even just sounds right. I mean, it feels good. I, I can see how easy it is to embrace a message like this. It should be a lot easier way of making friends. You know, it'll be a lot easier uh, sermon to preach even on a morning like today. But all roads leading to heaven is nothing more than an urban legend. And I am absolutely confident, you know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as your pastor, that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And that is why, why we teach what we teach as a church. You know, the Bible confirms this message for us, that all roads don't lead to the top of the mountain. That, that it does matter who you follow and put, who, put, who you put your life behind. It does matter the path that you choose in finding peace with God. Jesus is the only way. And I know that might seem arrogant, and I know that might sound even narrow-minded to some of you, maybe even some here, here today. But it's not an arrogant message. Uh, really, it's a beautiful message that God in his great love and mercy sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to this world for all people because he doesn't want anyone to perish. You know, Jesus came as a free gift available to us for anyone who will humble themselves and receive his love and his forgiveness and his mercy. You know, God, this did, God did this for you and me. And because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, you and I today have the opportunity 
to call God our Father. I want to let you know a couple of things from, from the start here today. We don't have enough time uh, to get into a, to a couple of these, but, but I want to let you know these. First of all, some of the criticism and heat that comes with Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven, um, we've brought this on ourselves. You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, we share in some of the responsibility of why this is such a heated, divisive message today, because uh, we're partially responsible for the tension. You know, the way you and I live really makes a difference, all right? The way that people portray us. Uh, and so I, I, I think it's important to be reminded that you and I always need to be asking, am I living the way that Jesus Christ would want me to? Uh, am I representing my father uh, the way that he chooses for me to live? The other thing is this. I realize that I'm not persuasive enough. I'm not creative enough. I'm not smart enough, even in this little time that we have here today, uh, to break down every other religion and make an attempt to explode, expose the flaws of these. And, and I can point you to some resources if you'd like to do some further research. But what I want to do today is show you Jesus. That's what I want to do. That's who I represent. I want to show you Jesus and who he claimed to be so that at least there will be no doubt. And for those of you that don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that I am praying today for you that, that as you hear this message, that maybe God would open up your heart in a way like it's never been opened before so that you can see the power of such a message. And if you are a Christian and you've been struggling with this message and struggling with the message that Jesus Christ is the only way, I am praying today that you will be encouraged in your faith and that God will give you the confidence in your faith and give you a passion for people who are far from him. And so let's examine Jesus. And again, I don't want there to be any doubts in who he is or who he claimed to be. And so as I begin, I want to show you one of the most defining, important statements that Jesus ever made about his life and his purpose. And you've probably heard this before, but John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said this. Towards the end of his life, just before the cross, he said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And don't miss this phrase. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to see this verse as it is so important to your faith and to the Christian faith that Jesus Christ came to this earth and as a way of clarifying and stating his purpose, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father. You know, the only road to God, the only path to God is through me. There is only one way back to God, and I am that way. And I hope you can see how bold and exclusive of a claim this really is. Uh, because it's an exclusive claim. And because it's an exclusive claim, it eliminates any other option out there for salvation. Jesus is the only way. You know, being a sincere Muslim will not get you to heaven. Being a sincere Mormon, as good as you might be, doesn't get you there. And get this, you can't earn your way back to God either. You and I can't earn our way back to God. We can't eliminate enough sin in our life to earn our way back to God. But Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. And he is the only way back to God. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You know, this was a bold claim. What is he claiming here? He's saying, hey, I am God. The, the Father and I, we, we are one. And it's this kind of claim that led to his death 2,000 years ago. I mean, you know, take a look at history. Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, none of them ever claimed to be God. What separates religions like these from Christianity? It's this. It's Jesus. That, that he is God. It's the way that we view Jesus. He is the pivotal piece in your salvation, and my salvation, he's the only way to God. And there was no doubt about this in his mind. I, I think it's so important that we begin right here because, again, I don't want there to be uh, any doubts about Jesus' claim, about the message of the Bible or even the message of this church, that Jesus is the way. 
And by God's grace, you know, we have been offered a way to life. We have been offered forgiveness through Christ's death on the cross. And again, that's why your response to an urban legend like this is so critical. You know, your response to Jesus is the most important decision that you will ever make in this world. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is sort of test the credibility of Jesus, uh, to examine Jesus' life and some of the things that he said about himself. And, And so we're going to ask a few questions of Jesus, but then as we close, I want to ask you a question about Jesus and see if you would be willing to make a decision for yourself this morning of this claim, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. So let's test the credibility of Jesus. Again, if you're taking notes, you can follow along. Uh, A few questions. The first question is this. What did people say about Jesus? What did people say about Jesus? Now, I'm I'm not talking about his roadies or his disciples or anything, but let's look at a couple of people who had no reason to like Jesus. Uh, Take Pontius Pilate, for example. Pilate was the Roman official responsible for oversight and leadership in Jerusalem. Now, he was appointed by the Roman government as the Romans ruled the world at this point in history. And Pilate was under incredible pressure to keep the peace in Israel. All right. And hostilities were growing as the Jewish leaders were were done with Jesus and they wanted him crucified. But only Pilate could order such an execution on the cross. And, And so Pilate put Jesus on trial and he went looking for any reason that he could find to find this man guilty but he couldn't find anything. In John chapter 18, and and you can read this uh, conversation between Jesus and Pilate, this trial for yourself uh, later on. Uh, In John 18, we we, we take a look here and we find that Pilate could find nothing wrong with Jesus. Uh, He could find nothing against him uh, to find him guilty. And, And again, Pilate was only concerned about keeping his superiors happy, but I think he wanted to find something wrong with Jesus. He he needed to to, to deal with this, but, but he couldn't. And so he returned uh, to the Jewish leaders and he said, you know, I I can find nothing wrong with this man. Uh, There is no sin that I can find him. But, you know, the story goes that due to some unique local customs at the time, eventually he is forced to order the crucifixion of Jesus. But again, the scriptures state that he could find nothing wrong. Next, we uh, consider the account of the Roman centurion. The the Roman centurion was responsible for providing supervision and leadership over the crucifixion. If you know the story, you know, the Bible says that that the the sky turned black and the ground shook and the the temple curtain tore in two as Jesus Christ died. And and Matthew records it this way, uh, Matthew 27, verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Surely this man, he was the son of God. You know, this testimony is fascinating in that the soldiers, the centurion had no reason to support or like Jesus, but witnessing his death and witnessing his death and later the resurrection and the chain of events that took place at the moment of his death here, they couldn't help but respond. He was the son of God. And it goes beyond the Bible too. Uh, It goes beyond the Bible to other historical figures. You know, when he asked, what did others think and say of Jesus? Take Josephus, for example. Josephus was a well-known, respected historian employed by the Roman government. Uh, Josephus was born a few years after Jesus died. And look what he writes in history. He says, now there was about this time a wise Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those who loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. 
Now, what makes a statement like this so fascinating to me? The first thing is this. Josephus wasn't even alive when Jesus was living. Secondly, he notes a man by the name of Pilate who sentences Jesus to the cross to death. And finally, this respected historian writes, he was the Christ. And he was seen alive again on the third day after his death. You know, three people, I can find nothing wrong with him. Surely this man was the son of God and he is the Christ and he is risen. Another question that we can ask is what did Jesus do? Jesus was well known for his teaching. He was well known for all the miracles that he performed. Uh, Look at what the gospel writer Mark said about him in Mark chapter six, verse two. He writes, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked, what's this wisdom that he has been given that he even does miracles? Now, what did Jesus do? Well, this verse reminds us that Jesus performed all of these miracles, things like opening the eyes of the blind and opening up the ears of the deaf. Uh, He cast out demons. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. Miracle after miracle in the Bible. And do you know this? Nowhere along the way did anyone question his ability to perform these miracles. Not even his greatest opponents, the Pharisees, questioned his ability to perform these miracles. They just wanted him to stop. He was a threat to their way of thinking. The third question is, what did God do? Well, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And this message is critical to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Because as wonderful and as awesome as the message of the cross is, it's nothing without an empty tomb. Uh, It's nothing without the Easter message that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 15 and 16, the apostle Peter was standing before a group of people, and he said this, he testifies after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, he says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And then notice these words, we are witnesses. We are witnesses of this. Notice that Peter didn't say, we're just hoping, or someone saw him alive, and, and I wish I could have. But we've seen him. You know, I am a witness to this fact. And what's interesting about this is that when you think about it, no one really ever denies the fact that Jesus Christ lived and walked on this earth. Right? I mean, you've heard that before. There's, there's very little evidence supporting the fact that, that Jesus couldn't have lived or that at least if there wasn't a man by the name of Jesus that was crucified on the cross. I mean, even those opposed to Christianity will say, you know what, there was this man named Jesus, you know, and I am really dig his teaching and I'm into Jesus, but I'm not much into his church. And, you know, Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's crazy. The resurrection, you know, I could never get around something like that. But God's word, the Bible tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he lives in heaven today. And and the church has been proclaiming this message now for over 2000 years, the message that the tomb is empty. And at the same time, skeptics and doubters offer their own solution for an empty tomb on Easter morning. And I want to address just a couple of those, a couple of the common excuses out there. Number one is, uh, one excuse for an empty tomb is that the soldiers actually stole away Jesus' body. But, But think about that for a second. I mean, the Roman Empire was so opposed to religion... They were so opposed to anything of God, especially someone like Jesus. And these soldiers specifically, those who would have been responsible and trusted with guarding the tomb, I mean, these were Rome's finest. I mean, absolutely sold out, loyal to Rome to the very core. So why would they steal his body? I mean, the tomb was sealed by Rome, meaning no one could open the tomb without the emperor's permission, without authorization. And so even if they had taken the body, I mean, when word started spreading that the tomb was empty, that Jesus Christ had risen from the body, don't you think someone would have come forward with, come forward with the body to just squelch the rumor altogether? 
say, no, 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 look, we've got his body right here. So that's one excuse. Another excuse for an empty tomb is that others will say that the disciples stole the body. And that's a weak argument as logic steps in. I mean, the disciples were ordinary, you know, unschooled, you know, ordinary, ordinary men. But and on the other hand, you've got Rome's finest brigade of soldiers guarding the tomb. And so unless Hannibal or B.A. Baracus or MacGyver or something is involved in some sort of plot here, you know, insist assisting in such a plan. I mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, how would a group of disciples overthrow a bunch of armed soldiers? And even if they did. Wouldn't the soldiers have been accountable to what's happened and then surely a cleanup, you know, project by Rome to, to follow? You know, I, I'm curious of Mark's account of the resurrection. Look at these verses with me. If you've got your own Bibles, you can go there in Mark chapter 15. I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes with this because, again, I think it's really fascinating. Mark 15, beginning in verse 44. And I want you to just notice the names that Mark uses here. Here's what he writes, beginning in verse 44. He says, Pilate, okay, was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, okay, so we've got a second person, he asked him if Jesus had already died, verse 45. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Now, this would have been Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who owned the tomb where Jesus was laid. Verse 46, so Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, Verse 47, two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Josie, saw where he was laid. Now, the gospel writer Mark here provides an account of the death. And again, this is fascinating, so, so hang with me. He, he provides an account of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus in his gospel. But there is something else happening here in the literary form that Mark chooses to record these events. And it's not as obvious without some further study. It's interesting and yet intentional how Mark writes and records here. According to one expert, Mark is writing following an ancient method, a method used as a way of certifying a death before Rome. And here's what I mean by this. Joseph of Arimathea. He is cited by name and identified as a witness who actually wrapped Jesus' body and saw to it that it was sealed in the tomb. Secondly, a Roman centurion, a, well, a man in a well-respected position and considered an official expert, a medical examiner of sorts for this time, bore witness to Jesus' death and reported it back to Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate would have been considered the legal authority on this matter, the only one capable of officially certifying the death of this man. And finally, Mark gives us two names of two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, as eyewitnesses to the burial. And so multiple experts have been involved in certifying the death of Jesus. And if asked, could be ready to give testimony of these events. So Mark is not just putting some neat words together here for a really cool story on Easter Sunday. He is certifying and stating according to the customs of this day so that there is no argument that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross and then buried. And then according to Mark, this is an official matter of history. Now look how it continues. Mark over Mark 16 now, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, now notice these names, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, three women, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up and they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away, and as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And he said, don't be alarmed. He said, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen 
he is not here. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, all right? Because Mark is continuing here. He's recording history, and he includes the name of three women. Three women as witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, biblical scholar Richard Baucom says that it's interesting in the way that Mark puts this together. And again, that he's letting us know that he's recording a historical account. It's not a legend. You know, the repeated names of these women were considered source citations. Uh, They're like footnotes. Uh, And by including their names, Mark was saying, hey, if you don't believe this to be true, go ask these three women and they will tell you exactly what they saw as I have recorded it. Now, last thing, why is this fascinating? Why is this such a big deal? I mean, why include the testimony of women? That's what I'd ask. And here's why. In ancient societies, women were marginalized. They did not hold positions of authority. Their, their testimony were given no, no, would have been given no credence at all whatsoever. Now, why mention this? If the goal of Mark or the disciples or any of the followers of Jesus, for that matter, was to start this big legend, this big hoax, that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, what sensible person would have included as the first three witnesses to his resurrection the testimony of a group of women? A man's testimony would have by far been considered more valid than a testimony of a woman. If it's all a hoax, the testimony of these women would not make sense. It only makes sense if the truth was that these women saw it exactly as the way that they did. And Mark says, go ask them. Add to that the 12 disciples. You know, of the 12, Judas uh, killed himself. John lived in isolation, but the 10 remaining disciples, every single one of them lived a horrific death as a martyr for the church and a martyr for Jesus Christ. You know, facing severe persecution and threats, each died an atrocious atrocious death proclaiming the name and resurrection of Jesus. And I can't help but wonder as I think about something like this is, would they have died for a lie? Would they have been willing to die for a lie? You know, Scripture tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus was spotted. Uh, There were witnesses. There were women who saw him on Easter morning. The disciples were reunited with him in the upper room. Over 500 people witnessed Jesus alive before he ascended into heaven. Of these witnesses, including the disciples, many would go forward executed for proclaiming the name and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I can't help but ask, would they die for a lie? Simon Greenleaf, a professor of law, an expert at Harvard University, an expert on testimony, writes, it was impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths that have narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead and had they known this fact as certainly as any other fact. Basically, he was saying, if it was a lie, there is no way that each of them could have stood up under pressure, that their testimony would have remained that strong all along the way if it was nothing but a big hoax. You know, would they have died for a lie? I mean, do you really think that 11 unordinary or ordinary, uneducated men could have, have devised a scheme, a hoax so great that 2,000 years later, people all over this world today are gathering to celebrate the risen Christ, Jesus Christ? You know, there is an urban legend that says that Jesus can't be God, that he isn't the only way. Instead, that all roads lead to heaven. Is it fact or is it fiction? What do you believe? What are you willing to, willing to conclude about a, matter, about a matter like this? You know, no matter what you do with this today, I want one thing to be clear for you. I want you to see clearly what Jesus claimed of himself. I want you to see what the message the Bible proclaims, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And, and I realize that this might not answer every question for you. Because maybe it doesn't explain the way that that pastor at your grandma's church talked. It might not explain that. 
Uh, it might not explain that so-called Christian friend from high school and, and what she did to you. Uh, I, I realize that it might not explain, well, what about that person in the other country who's never heard and, you know, is a good person and all. I, I realize that a message like that doesn't answer these questions and we can't go there today. But my question for you is, where do you stand with this message that you have heard with your own ears? What are you willing to conclude about Jesus? You know, to believe that he is the son of God, the only way back to God. You know, the late C.S. Lewis, you know, once far from God, turned follower of Jesus, uh, author of the famous Chronicles of Narnia series, professor at Oxford. He asks a great question of Jesus. And you've maybe heard me share these before or you read them for yourself. He agrees that we all have a decision to make regarding the, regarding Jesus. I mean, he's just too much of a figure. I mean, you need to make a decision of him. And, and really, when you think about it, you have one of three options. You know, when it comes to Jesus as the self-proclaimed son of God, the only way to God, uh, we've got three options to make of this man. The first thing is, is you could say he's a liar. That you'd have to be able to just look at Jesus and say, he's a liar. And we all lie, right? I mean, we're all capable of lying. And, uh, and, and so we can look at Jesus and we can say he's lying. You know, Jesus claimed to be the way to God, the son of God. And so maybe he was a liar. And if so, he was really good at it. I mean able to convince 12 men and a bunch of others to, to leave everything to follow him. I mean, you've been to meetings like those before, right? Somebody invites you over to their living room and says, hey, you want the opportunity to own your own business, the tax deductions and all. You just get one person, they get two who get three, you know, and it just keeps growing, right? Well, not really. I mean, that's not what this was about. But, but, but people left their homes. They left everything to follow Jesus. You know, and for three years they followed him. They gave their lives, you know, or... But are we just following a bunch of lies today, 2,000 years later? I mean, was one man capable of pulling off the greatest hoax that this world has ever seen? And suppose he was lying. Don't you think the whippings by those guards would have convinced him to turn his story another way? And if he didn't give in at that moment, I mean, don't you think when they laid him on the cross and they drove that first nail through his wrist, you know, they'd been like, whoa, 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 wait a second. I mean, geez, you nail I mean, come on, guys. I mean, it's, it's just a hoax. I made the whole thing up. But you can conclude that he's a liar. I mean, that's one of three options that you have. The second one is if you don't call him a liar, you can say he was crazy. I mean, you can call Jesus a lunatic. And when you think about the David Koresh's and the Marshall Applewhites of the world, I mean, we've all seen these crazy Messiah types who proclaim one thing, but they're nothing but a phony. But each, uh, when investigated, you know, demonstrated a long history of, uh, uh, of disturbing behavior. And their memories will come and go in 50 years. And we won't even remember them. But, but then there's Jesus, and he's loving, and he's generous, and he's compassionate, and he cared about those in the margins of society. But, but you can call him crazy. But would a lunatic really be that capable of, of fooling the world even 2,000 years later? The third thing is that if he's not a liar, if he's not a lunatic, you can, you can call him Lord. That Jesus is Lord, that he is Lord of all. Peter uh, said in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Uh, moments before he was executed, the followers Stephen shouted in Acts seven fifty six. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, the book of Revelation talks about the day when Jesus Christ returns and Revelation chapter 19, uh, beginning in verse 11, describes it this way. I, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His, his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. 
He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And verse 16 says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, that he is the King of kings and that he is the Lord of lords. That's Jesus Christ. I mean, this is Jesus. You know, as as C.S. Lewis so eloquently suggests, he has to be one of three to you. You can call him a liar. You can call him crazy. Or you can say, surely he was the Son of God. He is Lord of all. You know, he he never asks that we call him an example or a figure. Uh, He never asks us that we simply call him a great teacher. He only asks that you call him Lord and Savior. And so you really have one of three options. You can call him a liar. You can call him a lunatic. Or you can call him Lord. What is it that you say about Jesus? I want you to know that I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Uh, I know him personally. And I sense and I see God's work in me in amazing ways that reminds me all of the time that he is with me. And because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, I have life not only today, but I have life in eternity with my father in heaven again, because Jesus is the way he is my way back to God. It's the evidence in me that I see all the time. But you know what else there? There is something else that I see that encourages me and encourages my faith more than any other information that I could communicate today outside of the Word of God. It's the evidence of a changed life. And I don't know if you've ever seen anything like it before. Uh, For the past few months, as you know, we just completed construction on phase one of of this area here over on the other side of the wall. And so for a couple of months, the the place was, was filled with Uh, men every day and women too, working on this facility, getting it ready to go. Uh, But there were a few people who were here from beginning until end, you know, managing the entire project. And uh, there was one guy in particular that I got to know and and really appreciated him and his work and his leadership here. And one day he had reason to come into my office and, and he immediately walked in and he noticed this painting on my wall. If you've ever been in my office before, maybe you've seen it or maybe you've seen it for yourself. But, but I was surprised when the words came out of his mouth, wow, that's a Rembrandt. Well, it's not really a Rembrandt. It's just a print. I mean, I think I got it for like 10 bucks at posters.com. But, uh, but I was taken back, not because he was a construction worker, and I thought, well, you shouldn't know anything about paintings. I know nothing about paintings, all right? Not whatever. I, but, but he walked in and said, wow, that's a Rembrandt. And I'm like, wow. I mean, you know that. And he's like, yeah. He, he says, I, I can just tell by the way it's painted. I, I think I've seen it before. What is it? And so what, what a great opportunity. And so we started talking for a few minutes. I told him, well, I mean, it's, a, it's called the prodigal son. And, and it's a picture of the father who is greeting his son as he comes home from this long journey. He's been away for a long time. He rebelled. But the father kept waiting. And in love, he welcomes him back. And, and he was just fascinated and, and seemed to recall, yeah, I've heard about this before. And I, I said, you know what, I, I've got this great book. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son, written by a, uh, the late uh, priest Henry Nowen, where he really describes what was going on in Rembrandt's life when he painted this and, and what it meant for, for Nowen personally. And, and so I said to my friend, I said, hey, why don't you take it and read it? And, and I could remember just walking over into that area at lunchtime, and I'd see him re- sitting off to the side, and he was reading it. Well, well the other day, we're, we're all done, and, and the team is packed up. He was in to, to turn in the key, and, and he stopped me, and he brought back my book. And, and, and he gave it back, and, and he said, you know, um, you have no idea what it meant for me to read this. He said, over 20 years ago, um, I decided that I needed to quit drinking. 
And he says, I've been sober for 20-some years. And he said, you know what the answer to it was? He said, the day that I realized that God was there as my helper and as my friend and that he sent Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and that I could find forgiveness. And he goes, I just have to tell you that that's what keeps me going every single day. That's why I'm sober still to this day, knowing that I am forgiven by my God and I am forgiven by his son, Jesus Christ, who has made a way for me back to God. That's what encourages me. It's the power of a changed life. Because here's what I realize. I realize that we as Christians and we as a church have not always done the best job of representing Jesus in the gospel message. But the message of Jesus Christ is not an arrogant message. It's not a narrow-minded, judgmental message. It's not a prideful, look what I have and you don't have kind of message. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is that right there. It's the picture of a father who has been waiting waiting for you to come home. And if you read Luke 15 for yourself, Jesus describes God like this woman who who searches the house frantically looking for the lost coin. And that God is like this shepherd who isn't satisfied until every single one of his sheep are accounted for at night. And that God is like this. That no matter how far you've run, no matter what you've done, where you've been, or what you've ever thought about him, he is waiting for you to come home. The message of the entire Bible is a story of rescue. It's the story of the work that God has been doing ever since the Garden of Eden to bring his family back together. And he's waiting for you. Let's pray. And as we pray today, I, with your heads bowed, I just want to say that, that when it comes to Jesus, um, every single one of us, we really fall into one of two positions. You know, there are those of you here today and that say that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, that he's the Lord of your life. And if that's you, let me just ask you this today as we pray. Do do your actions right now reflect the place and the power of Jesus in your life? I mean, think about where you are with God right now and how you're living for him. Uh, Think about the way that you treat your spouse or your friends or your coworkers, maybe even your mom. Think about how you spend your money. Think about the thoughts of your mind. Do your actions reflect the place Jesus has in your life? your actions reflect that he is lord of your life that maybe you're not where you need to be right now but even as you see this painting here today as you hear these scriptures you know maybe you're reminded maybe the spirit of god is working in you with such power right now that you realize you need god's forgiveness in your life and if that's you right now and maybe you feel like you know what i've strayed i need to come back to god um, you can pray these words this morning god forgive me forgive me from drifting from you. Thank you for Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, my way back to God. I said two positions because either you know him as Lord or you don't. And I realize that today I've given you a bunch of information, but I know that some of you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord. And I also realize that that the Spirit of God has been working in your life in a powerful way, maybe even before you walked into this room today. And maybe while you walked into this room not ready to call Jesus Christ Lord, maybe you will leave this room even this morning saying He is Lord of all. As we pray, let me say this as clearly as I can. It is the gospel. It means good news. The good news is that God... uh, is the father in that painting 
And he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ into this world to die on the cross for your sin and mine. And death could not keep him. And he is alive today and victory is ours. It's your victory and mine. And this is the good news. It's there. It's ready for you. But you have to take it. You have to call on it today. God, right now, I'm praying in the name of Jesus Christ for those in this room right now who have never called you Lord that today would be that day and that nothing would stand in their way from calling you Lord of all here this morning. As we're praying, if there are those of you and you feel like you're being drawn to God right now and you're ready to call him Lord, if that's your prayer today and you want to acknowledge that, you know, with with every head bowed and every eye closed, just saying, I'm calling him Lord of all today, just slip your hand up right where you are right now saying, "I I need Jesus, I want him in my life, I'm going to call him Lord today. Just as a way of making that testimony before God this morning. And as you do that, you can pray this prayer with me. Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. I surrender myself to you. Forgive me of my sin. Welcome me home today. And we celebrate that. God, we give you thank you. Thanks for Jesus Christ, uh, the gift of life, our rescuer and our reward, our Savior, for he is Lord of all.